The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Appreciate you being with us this morning. Uh, Just for full disclosure here this morning... um, this is a text you probably never heard taught on before. All right? Um, when I'm into this, I was talking to the guys this week uh, at our men's meeting that this is a text that I'm like, I want to just get to 17, okay? Chapter 17 is the Lord's Prayer. That's just awesome stuff in there. And I'm like, I just want to get through this, you know? So this is not something that I've really never heard anybody teach on this. But uh, hopefully we'll be able to you know, draw some things out of here that will be beneficial to us. And as I got in and I started finding things that I didn't know were there. So I think we'll have a good time this morning. Anyway, this is our 22nd and final message of Yeshua's instruction to His disciples in the upper room. And I think this is an important section, this upper room discourse, in the Scripture they call the Book of Glory, which runs from 13 to the end of the book. Now, we got one more chapter to go to complete the Upper Room Discourse, but there's no instruction in that to the disciples. It's simply Yeshua's prayer to the Father. You know, people say the Lord's Prayer. This truly is the Lord's Prayer, okay? This is it. Now, the final section that we're going to look at this morning is from verse 23 down to 33. The section break really should be at 25, but I didn't really get to cover 23 and 24 last time, so I'm just going to, you know, we're going to start there. Now, in our text this morning, the Lord's going to basically say His last words to His disciples. This is just a few hours, basically, before the crucifixion. This just section started in chapter 13 and runs all the way to the end of 16, which is part of the Upper Room Discourse. And in this text, the Lord made all kinds of promises to His disciples. He's also given them warnings. He keeps talking about dying He keeps talking about leaving them, and as you can imagine, they're kind of filled with anxiety as he, you know, this is not stuff they want to hear, all right? It doesn't fit their view of Messiah. He told them earlier in chapter 16, they're going to throw you out of the synagogue. He said, they're even going to go so far as to kill you, and the people who kill you are going to think they're doing a service for God. They're going to kill you in service to God. He has told them that they should expect the world's going to persecute them. And that's going to persecute them because it persecuted Him. He said, the world's even going to kill you because they're going to kill me. They hate us as believers, the world does, because we're not part of the world. And because they don't know God. So the fact that He is leaving them and that they're going to be persecuted has caused them a lot of anxiety. So He ends this thing, this section here, trying to calm them, trying to give them some peace. Now, we ended last time with verse 22, so let's pick it up in 23. He said, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Now, in that day, the context indicates that the day in view is the time when the disciples will have full joy. We see that in verse 24. And that would be after Yeshua's resurrection and ascension, according to Luke 24, 
So in that day is after the ascension. All right? He says, you will ask me nothing. Why won't they ask him anything? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's, that's right. The reason they're not going to ask him, he says, in that day, after the ascension, they're not going to ask him anything. He's not going to be there to ask. Okay? They can't ask him anything. They would have to take their request to the Father because he's not going to be there. Now, while Yeshua's with them, they asked him everything. I mean, they came to him for every need, every desire. When they had needed explanations on something, they would come to the Lord. He was Yahweh in the flesh, and he was able to give them the physical help and the spiritual guidance and instruction that they needed. He says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Now, that's, that's quite a stunning promise, people. And this is not the first time we've heard this promise. I mean, beginning in chapter 14, Yeshua told the disciples that when they keep His commandments, that whatever they ask, they're going to get. Now, in the previous two chapters, Yeshua has made this statement four times. And now in this chapter, He repeats that three more times. Look what He does. He says in 14, 13, whatever you ask in My name, I'll do it. There's something special about this in My name thing, right? Because He keeps saying it. Verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. These promises have caused a lot of controversy in church history over the years, arguing about what, you know, what does this mean? What's going on here? Um, it's caused a lot of believers to stumble because they're like, I don't see this. I don't see it happening. In John 15, 7, he says, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. It'll be done for you. Just whatever you wish, just go ahead and ask it, if you abide in me. All right, let's go back to uh, his promises. In chapter 15, verses 16 and 23 basically say the same thing. It says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. 16, 1624, ask and you will receive. 1626, and that day you will ask in my name. All right, now there's a lot of promises here. These are promises he's making throughout this time, this upper room discourse. Now let me ask you this, believers. Are you getting everything you ask for in prayer when you pray in Jesus' name? <laughs> well, why not? I mean, isn't that what's promised here? Just ask whatever you will in His name and you'll get it. Okay, maybe this is not to us. Now, I see several possibilities as to why maybe these things are not true in our lives. Maybe we're not praying in Yeshua's name. Maybe we don't understand what that is. Maybe we're not getting that. Okay, so that's why we're not getting it. Or maybe we're understanding, misunderstanding these promises. You know, maybe they're not for us. All right, but something is wrong here. Now, we talked about prayer this morning. Jeff talked about prayer in our Lord's Supper time. And, you know, how George Mueller would pray and we'd, he'd see, you know, incredible things, all right? And uh, one of the stunning things that he read from Mueller was someone asked Mueller about his surplus, you know, did you have money in the bank, you have money set aside? And he said, why would I pray if I had money set aside? God would say, go get the money you got set aside. So he prayed out of desperation because he needed things, you know? And that's one of the problems in America. 
we have too much surplus. We don't really go to the Lord with needs, you know. So we really have to start by understanding what these texts meant to the people to whom they are originally written. Okay, that's always where you go to the Bible, all right? Let's find out who's he talking to. And what's, he, what's it mean to them? See, here he's talking to his disciples, first century disciples, who in just 53 days are going to experience Pentecost. And on Pentecost, they're going to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They're going to have supernatural gifts to minister to the body of believers, the church. So it's my opinion that these texts apply to the first century disciples and only to them. And I think that's why people today, they're praying and they're praying in Jesus' name and they're asking this and they're not getting it and they're saying, what's wrong, Lord? I'm praying, I'm doing all these things and I'm trying to you know, ask in your name and nothing is, I'm not seeing it. It's these disciples that our Lord is going to use to take the church from infancy to maturity during the transition period. It's a special group doing a special work. And please understand me, I'm not saying prayer is not for today. I pray every day. I think prayer is very important in our lives. What I'm saying is that I believe these specific promises about getting whatever you ask for are for first century saints only. Or I'm really missing the boat here. Because I've been praying my whole Christian life and I'm like, I see some answer to prayer, a lot of prayers. I'm like, what's going on here, Lord? Ask whatever you will. I'm not getting it. Something's wrong. And I used to struggle with these. I mean, if these problems, because the problem is we read promises in the Bible, we take them to us. You know? I mean, how many Christians today are taking Jeremiah 29 for themselves? You know? And, you know, he's making promises to the exiles. And they're saying, yes, the Lord has a, you know, promised us good things. And I'm just like, no, no, no. Understand who the promise is made to before you go claiming it. You know, how many times have you heard someone say, every promise in the book is mine? No, it's not. Okay? It's not at all. <laughs> I mean, these promises are made to real people. They're not just general things thrown out there, like fortune cookies. And we have to understand what did it mean to the people to whom they were written. Now, did you notice the condition here over and over that we saw that you ask in His name? So what is, I think that's one of the problems there. What does that mean? It means that when you get to the end of your prayer, you say, in Yeshua's name. Oh, you can't say that. You have to say Jesus, right? Because that's a magical word. All right? You would not believe how many people go nuts over the idea that you have to use the word Jesus because that's somehow... Of our videos, that's the highest percentage viewed, that video. It's over 134,000 views on why I say Yeshua instead of Jesus. And the comments are amazing. If you want, if you want to have a good time, go read the comments, you know, because people think there's something magic in the name Jesus. And if that's true, if there's magic, then there's been no magic before the 1700s. Because no one ever heard that name before the 1700s. There was no J in the language before the 1700s. So that name was never heard. So, but you can't use logic when you're dealing with some people, all right? So, <laughs> So when you say, you know, in Jesus' name, it's not a magical, stick it at the end of your sentence, whatever you say, whatever you ask for, you know, just stick that on and it's guaranteed you're going to get it. Here's what we have to understand. In the Bible, a person's name is not, you know, just some random letters. A person, the name of a person is linked to the person's character. Like we say he has a good name. It doesn't mean we like the name, it means the person has some good character. 
So to pray in Yeshua's name means to come to the Father on the basis of all that Yeshua is and all He has done for us at the cross. When we approach the Father in Yeshua's name, we're coming to the Father in full acknowledgement of and dependence upon Yeshua. We're not coming in our own name. We're not depending on our preconceived righteousness to give us access. In other words, hey, it's me, David, Lord. I'm a pretty good guy. Open up the doors, you know, to prayer. Let me No, I'm coming in Yeshua's name. We come acknowledging that our only right to access into the Father's presence is Yeshua and His righteousness, which is credited us who believe in Him. Those who have come to God through Christ can approach God's throne freely and boldly and make requests. That's pretty incredible, people. We need to see this promise of answered prayer in the context of what Yeshua has already spoken. He's made great promises about the work and the ministry through these disciples. They would naturally have had fears and reservations. You know, they're going to persecute you, but you're going to go and take the gospel to the world. So it gives them a critical key to carrying out these tasks. He says, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. So I see these promises made just to the first century disciples who he is leaving. It is for their work of maturing the church. And, and, and maybe these promises are also for any other Christian who doesn't live in America. Because as we talked about this morning, you know, when Gennady was here, he shared with us that where I'm from, prayer works. Meaning that he prays for things and he sees answers because, you know, he's doing the work of the Lord and he's doing it in a situation where he doesn't have a lot of surplus. He told me at times we make plans to go to the war front to take food. We don't have any food. We tell the people we're going on this day and we got nothing to take. And then by that day, people come to us and say, hey, I got food. I got this to take. You know, so they have a different attitude on prayer. And again, like I said about Mueller, the surplus causes us not to pray because we got it. I mean, how many of us pray, give us this day our daily bread? Why? First of all, I don't eat bread. Secondly, you know, I got a refrigerator and a pantry full of food. You know, so we don't, it's like we, we're in America, we're not depending on the Lord. And so people say, well, prayer doesn't really work. We're not really praying for things we need because we don't have a lot of need. All right, so these men are getting these promises. If you want more information on this, go back to John 14, uh, 12, 13, and 14, where we looked at these verses there and give you a more in-depth explanation. In verse 24, he says, Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you'll receive, that your joy may be full. Now, why does Yeshua say that until now they have not asked anything in his name? Well, the statement implies that at that point, the disciples haven't asked anything in his name because they really can't ask anything in his name because they are not completely united to Him. They don't have access to the Father yet. All right? Because the Pentecost hasn't happened yet. The Spirit hasn't come. The Lord hasn't died for them yet. See, this union can only take place after the hour of His passion, His death, burial, resurrection, and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Notice what Paul told us about this union. He says in Ephesians 2.13, But now, in Christ Yeshua, you who once were far off, Talking to Gentiles, you're far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been brought near to God. And then he says in verse 18, for through Him, speaking of Christ, both have access in one Spirit to the Father. After the resurrection, we have access to God. 
And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter, no doubt, building on what he heard in the upper room, says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. So the work of the Lord Yeshua is to accomplish the atoning sacrifice as high priest in order that the people of God might be brought to the Father. The disciples were united to the life of Christ in the indwelling of God, the Spirit, at Pentecost. And they're going to be so intimately united to God the Father because they are one with the Son who is one with the Father. It's a total union. He says, ask and you will receive. Now he, again, a second time he's urging his disciples to ask. Uh, The verb in the Greek text is a present imperative, meaning keep on asking. Keep on asking. Why? He says, that your joy may be full. See, he said these things to the disciples so their joy may be full. Remember, the disciples' hearts are heavy that evening. He's telling them he's going to leave. He's telling them some distressing things about his dying. That troubled them greatly. But when we read the book of Acts, we find joyful believers. Very often in the midst of some serious adversity. Joy is a byproduct of abiding in Christ. See, we look to find joy in the world. People do all kinds of crazy things to get joy, you know, they they think, they need, when it comes from God. It comes from abiding in Christ. That's where true joy comes from. And the more you abide, I think, the greater your joy, the greater your peace in in the midst of great turmoil. So through Christ, we now have access to the throne of grace. Calvin said this, This is a remarkable passage by which we are taught that we have the heart of the Heavenly Father as soon as we have placed before Him the name of His Son. He's talking about asking in Jesus' name. He said, hey, it's just, you know, we place the the Son before Him and we have access into the presence of God. Look at verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now he says, I've said these things to you. That these things is not, I don't think, just the previous chapter or even the Upper Room Discourse. I think he's talking about everything I've taught you. Why? And I think that because the thing he's referring to here is at the end of the verse, he says, tell you plainly about the Father. So the the things he's told them are things about the Father. See, Yeshua came to reveal the Father. We've been over that many, many times. John 14, 9, Yeshua said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, seen the Father. Now, he's not saying, I am the Father. He's saying, I came to represent Him. I do what the Father does. I say what the Father says. So seeing me is seeing the Father. I'm revealing Him. Now, the emphasis of verses 7-11 through of chapter 14 is clear. Five times Yeshua virtually says the same thing. That He and the Father are so profoundly one that His presence is the presence of God the Father. In John 14, he says, in verse 7, if you had known me, you had known the Father. Verse 7b, from now on you do not know him, you have known him and seen him, because you see Christ, you see him. 10a, do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? There's the oneness between them. Verse 11a, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. This is what I've been saying from the beginning of this study in John. Yeshua is Yahweh. 
Yahweh is revealed in Christ. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, as Paul put it in Colossians. In Him, the very wisdom, the truth of God is personified. So everything He ever said, everything Christ ever taught was to reveal the Father to us. He tells them that He has been saying these things to them in figures of speech. The Greek word here, paomia, which refers to language where the meaning doesn't lay on the surface. Uh, You have to search for it. You have to dig it out. It's not real easy to understand. The Septuagint uses this word to translate the Hebrew word mashal, which refers to a wide range of figurative speech, often containing obscure or enigmatic elements. So Yeshua acknowledges they had not been giving direct answers to the disciples. Questions, the things they were asking, they don't always get a direct answer. He'd been speaking in enigmatically or cryptically to them. So Yeshua promises that at times coming when there will no longer be any confusion. He goes, the hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figures of speech. But I'm going to tell you plainly about the Father. So there's a time coming. There won't be any more confusion over symbolic language. Because why? Because God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, is going to reveal to them the hidden things. We've talked about this in the past. They couldn't understand because the Spirit hadn't taught them this stuff yet. Those mysteries that seem veiled and hidden will be plain to believers through the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now he says, the hour is coming. The hour here refers to the time after Yeshua had completed His atoning work and the Holy Spirit came. We know this because the next verse, Yeshua uses the phrase, in that day. And that phrase was used in 1420 and 1623 to speak of the coming of the Spirit of Pentecost. So the crucifixion and resurrection of Yeshua would mean a change in the way He communicated with the disciples. Now, it's kind of interesting here because what other teacher tells you, I'm going to die, but after I do, I'll continue to teach you. You know? Kind of striking. He says, I'm leaving you. I'm going to die, but I'll continue to teach you. In just a few hours, he's going to be dead. They're going to watch their Lord, their Savior, their Messiah, hung on the cross. But he's going to continue as the world's teacher through the Holy Spirit and through the ministry of the apostles. So the Spirit's going to help the disciples understand the meaning of what he said earlier. And that's we've seen that all through John. You'll get this later. You don't get it now, but later you'll get it because... Once the Spirit comes, He's going to enlighten you. He says, He will tell you plainly about the Father. The word plainly here is pretty strong. It means something that is clear, something that comes across boldly. It's a kind of speech that conceals nothing and passes over nothing. Now, the only way we know the Father is through the Son. He says, He's going to tell you plainly about the Father. Well, if you want to know about the Father, it's always said, the Son reveals Him. Look at Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by the Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now that's... We see this all through the Gospel. We see this through John. We see it through the other Gospels. And every time I read a verse like this, I think of John Hagee. Because Hagee says that Jews don't need the Gospel. He says the Jews have their own covenant with God. This is a man who is a major speaker in Christianity. And he's so off theologically 
It isn't even funny. The Jews don't need Yeshua, he says. They don't need Him. Well, he says, no one knows the Father except the Son. If you don't know the Son, you're never going to know the Father. And yet, Hagee, hundreds of thousands of listeners. All right, in the beginning of our study in this book, we saw this in 118. No one has ever seen God. The only God. Who's that? The only God. That's the Son. Who is at the Father's side. He has made Him. No, you can't know the Father except knowing the Son. So we need the Holy Spirit to disclose the things of Christ to us. And we need Christ to reveal the Father to us. Basically, people, we're dependent on the triune God for all spiritual understanding. He's got to teach us. Verse 26, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. What in the world is he saying here? You're going to ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I'm going to ask the Father on your behalf. In other words, I'm not going to ask for you. He is telling them that after Pentecost, they'll be able to speak to the Father themselves. That's pretty powerful. Up to this point, they took all their needs to Yeshua. But once the Spirit comes, they can take the request directly to the Father. Now that had to be shocking to Jewish believers. All right, Jewish believers, they're not familiar with running into the presence of God. Okay, whenever they even went to the temple, which was the house of God, they took a sacrifice, they hoped they did everything right, you know, just so they could have some fellowship. But God was in the Holy of Holies symbolically, and nobody went in there except the high priest once a year. So the fact that they have access to God is pretty remarkable. Believers, I think it's an incredible thought. We have access to God 24-7. The writer of Hebrews said this, Let us then with confidence, boldness, draw near to the throne of grace. Do we receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need? See, because of Christ's finished work, we have access to the Father. This is something I don't think that the Catholics today understand either. I think they're still locked in Old Covenant theology. See, they think you need someone else to give you that access, like Mary or a priest. Ludwig Ott, who's a Roman Catholic systematic theologian who says he speaks for the church, says this, Mary's intercessory cooperation extends to all graces so that no grace occurs to mankind without the intercession of Mary. You don't get any grace. You get nothing unless Mary is praying for you. And now you know why the Catholics are praying to Mary all the time. Okay? <clears throat> so we can't go directly to Yahweh. We need Mary. Ott goes on to say, the redemptive grace of Christ is conferred on nobody without the actual intercessory cooperation of Mary. So without Mary, people, we're all in trouble. We need Mary to take us to the throne of grace. No, we don't. Yeshua says we can go directly to the Father in His name. Man, that's amazing to you know, keep people in bondage to things like that. <clears throat> Verse 27, For the Father Himself loves you, because you have loved Me and have believed that I came from God. 
Now, Yeshua encourages these men who are about to fail. These men are about to fall away. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. With the promise that they can go directly to the Father who loves them and He'll hear them because of Christ's finished work. That's encouraging to them. We're going to fail. They don't know this yet, but He's going to tell them in a minute. What's really encouraging to me about this text is that the word for love here is not agape, either of them. The word love here is phileo. You say, what's so encouraging about that? Well, I think we know what agape means. Agape is the kind of love the New Testament speaks of that's love of the will. It's directed toward an object that usually requires some self-sacrifice. It's a, it's a self-sacrificial act. You know, to do good for somebody, to help somebody, that's agape. Phileo is not the love in the sense of self-sacrifice and expression of the will for a person. Phileo is the love of affection. It expresses a common delight in the same thing. See, phileo means affection, friendship, a feeling of tender affection towards somebody. Phileo is used to describe a man's closest and dearest and truest friends. This is a word that God uses about His love for His Son. He says in 5.20, For the Father phileo the Son, and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. We understand that, don't we? God has an affection, a love for His Son. We get that, right? But do you get that He has a tender affection toward us? See, that's kind of encouraging. That's kind of amazing to me. God not only agape loves me, has made a sacrifice in His Son, put to death for my behalf, He likes me. <laughs> he has an affectionate feeling towards me. The affection that the Father has for us is because we both love His Son. I love His Son. He loves His Son. He has an affection towards me. He says, He loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. See, the verbs here used to describe the action of love and faith, they're both perfect tense verbs. This means that their love for Christ was permanent. It was a settled attitude of life for them. He's saying we don't have to be afraid to pray to the Father because the Father has an affection towards you. You know, when, when you know somebody cares about you, somebody loves you, has an affection to you're not afraid to talk to them or ask them for things. They care about you. Believers, we have a direct relationship with the Father as well as with the Son and the Spirit. That's pretty amazing. He says, through Him, Christ, we also have obtained access by faith. That's access to God. This is temple imagery, the picture of access. We can go into God the Father. He has a feeling of tender affection towards us. I think that's pretty neat. He says, because you love me. It's because they have a love for Christ that the Father has this tender affection. Now, understand this. The agape love of the Father is because why? Why does God love us in agape? No reason whatsoever, but on our part, right? He loves us because of who He is, and He just says, I love them. I'm going to pick them out and love them. I'm going to give them you know, the affection, my, my love, the benefit of my love. But phileo, He's saying, I phileo you because you love my Son. I have an affection towards you because you love 
what I love. Well, how do we love Christ? Is it just some feeling? Man, I just got this great feeling about the Lord. People get this, all right? Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Do you think that's clear enough? I mean, how many people today will tell you, oh, I love Christ? I've told a lot of people, no, you don't. And they look at you like, you know, how can you say that? Well, because here's what he says. If you love me, keep my commandments. Do what I'm asking you to do. And if you're not doing it, then guess what? You're not loving. You're not loving him. You might have a feeling, a strong feeling, some emotional feeling. That's not what he's talking about here. If you love me, do what I've asked you to do. We love Christ by living in obedience to Him. All right, look at verse 28. This is a verse you could skip over and not get the power that's in here. He says, I came from the Father, I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Do you see what he's saying there? This is the Gospel, people, in one verse. This is a summary of Johannian Christology This is really the heart of the Gospel. This statement summarizes Yeshua's entire mission from incarnation to ascension. He says, I came from the Father. This speaks of His eternal glory with the Father before the world was even created. And this is how Lazarus began the Gospel. In 1.1 he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's there in fellowship before in the very beginning. The Word was God. Yeshua is the eternal God. He came from heaven. And He said that over and over throughout this Gospel. So He said, I came from the Father, and He says, and have come into the world. What's that? That's the incarnation. This is John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He took on flesh. He left the glories of heaven and came into the world to show us the Father. The eternal God became a man. That's really hard to fathom. Don't think about that too long. He says, and now I'm leaving the world. It doesn't mean, you know, I'm catching the next bus, I'm taking a train, I'm getting out of here. He's leaving the world by way of the cross. No one took his life. He went to the cross voluntarily. The cross was the very reason that he came into this world. He told Nicodemus earlier, chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And by being lifted up here, he's talking about his death. This is the earliest recorded prediction of him making of his death. It's an allusion to death by crucifixion. He's got to die. The serpent was lifted up. I'm going to be lifted up on a pole. And then he says, and I'm going to the Father. This points to the resurrection from the dead. This points to his ascension into heaven. Yeshua was exalted by God because he finished the work. God gave him to do. He humbled himself, Philippians chapter 2, and God highly exalted him. From start to finish, people, our salvation does not depend on anything in us. Anything we do. Our salvation is all about the finished work that Christ did. Religion is about what you do. Christianity is about what's been done. And that's a huge difference, people. Because so many people today say, I got to do this, I got to do that. Not for salvation, you don't. Wait till we get to chapter 17. It's just been reinforcing all we've been seeing so far in this gospel about God has made a choice of a people for himself. 
So in John 16, 27, 28, Yeshua is once again telling the disciples about their unique bond. He reaffirms that he is one with the disciples and they are one with God. He's one with God. It's through our union with Christ. That's why we have access to the Father. And it's only when his hour is accomplished and his return is completed, return to the Father, that the disciples are, have that confidence that their prayers are going to be answered because they can pray in his name now. Because they're one with him and he's with the Father. In 29 and 30, now the disciples, he's been teaching, the disciples give their response to what he just said. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So the disciples, ironically, were confident that they believed they understood what Yeshua just told them. But there's a problem there. Because in verse 25, Yeshua had promised the plain understanding after His resurrection. So He just told them, after my hour, after my resurrection and ascension, I'll speak to you plainly. And they go, oh, we get it now. You don't get it at all, dummies. I'm still here. Okay, I said after. D.A. Carson writes this, No misunderstanding is more pathetic than that which thinks it no longer exists. <laughs> I got it now. I understand it all. No, you don't. Ignoring or not comprehending Jesus' instant that the time for speech without enigma lies just ahead, the disciples think he's already speaking without figures of speech. You know, what the disciples say here, it reminds me of Peter, you know, in his well intentioned exagger exaggeration earlier, you know, where he says to the Lord, I'm willing to die for you. I'll, you know, everybody forsakes you and leaves you. Not me, Lord. I'm sticking by your side. And the Lord says, oh, you're going to deny me three times before this night's over, Peter. You know? Now the disciples all think they understand. They think they clearly understand what he's saying. We get it now. See, the, their confident statement in verse 30 is soon going to be put to the test. All right? So Yeshua answers them, do you now believe? You know, they're, oh, Lord, we get it now. We got it. We're on board. We're with you. Now, what's interesting is this statement can be translated in different ways. If any of you have the NIV, uh, throw it out. <coughs> that's, that's where you start with the NIV. You throw it out because it's the nearly inspired version. Now, it's really, it's not a good version. At times, it gets things right. But, you know, a broke clock is right twice a day, right? So, but the NIV translates this you believe at last, with an exclamation point. Now, the Greek can be rendered as a direct statement. A declarative statement like that. You believe at last. It can be. Or it can be in a question, an interrogation. Either one is possible in the Greek. But almost all versions take it as a question. I think the very next verse argues strongly for it being a question. here. So the Lord's asking them, you guys now believe? Really? You think you got it all figured out? The word now is a word that means at this very moment. See, I just told you after the resurrection you'll understand. But you think you got it now. The arrogance, they just didn't get it. They don't really understand. In a few hours, he's going to be hanging on the cross. And when that happens, they're all going to run away. They're going to forsake him. Now this question that he gives them seems to plainly indicate that the Lord didn't think they had really come to the faith they're expressing. 
They lack faith that will give them the strength to stand with them during the trials. Verse 32, Behold, he says, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will all be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. Now, in Mark's Gospel, Mark, talking about the same thing, says this in verse 14, 27, And Yeshua said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. See, Yeshua's prediction is the disciples are going to be offended at the suffering and death, and they're going to run. They'll turn from their dependence on Him. Their fear will drive them to just get away and leave Him. Now, if we consider that these men knew Christ probably better than anybody, I mean, they spent three years with Him. They watched Him raise dead people. They watched Him calm a storm. They watched Him make a boat disappear from where it was and end of its destination. They saw Him cast out demons. They saw Him heal leprosy. They saw Him do so much. It seemed like no matter what, they'd be there because we know who this man is. But as soon as they arrested him, guess what? We're out of here. We are out of here. Yeshua warns them in this text. And then he quotes in Mark here. So Yeshua said to them, you're going to fall away. And then he quotes from Zechariah. Let's look at Zechariah 13.7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares Yahweh of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. So Lazarus' reference to scattering in our text suggests that he also saw a reference here to Zechariah. Yeshua turned their thinking to the prophecy of Zechariah to help the disciples understand the suffering and death of the Son of God on their behalf. They still didn't get it. Not that they weren't going to understand at that time, because they just don't, but they would in that day. Zechariah 13.7 fits perfectly into the context of Yeshua being removed from them and His followers being left to their own devices. However, in the context of the overall flow of Zechariah chapter 12 and 13, this passage referred to the removal of Israel's military leader. And this is what they thought of Christ. See, He's going to conquer Rome. He's going to set them free. So Yeshua being put to death would cause them to stumble. What? Our military leader can't die? A Messiah can't die? The entire passage, not just the half a verse which Yeshua uses, can be used to apply to the situation in which Yeshua and the disciples were finding themselves at that moment. Yahweh is going to strike the shepherd. And that striking was going to be nailing him to the cross. And here's what you've got to understand. We see this in Isaiah. We see it here in Zechariah. Who's doing the striking here? This is God's work. This is God pouring out His wrath on His Son. Why? Did His Son do something wrong? Not at all. He's pouring out on Him for us. Somebody has to pay our sin debt. Yeshua is doing it. Yahweh says, I'm the one who who does it. Christ was smitten by God and Christ willingly endured the smiting because He loved us. The death of Christ has fully, listen, the death of Christ has fully propitiated the wrath of God. A holy God was angry because of sin. Guess what? He's not now. And it fully propitiated. It didn't do some of it. Okay, God took away your sin. From now on, you're on your own. We're all in trouble. As soon as we're forgiven, we start sinning again. No. 
Your sins, past, present, and future, Christ paid them all. He knew everything you'd ever do, and he paid every bit of it, and you are accepted by the Father in Christ. Man, it's a beautiful place. How was Zechariah's prophecy fulfilled? Well, when the guards came with their swords to arrest Yeshua at Gethsemane, the disciples abandoned Christ and scattered like sheep. They took off. Now, we've already learned in the studies in chapter 13 that the disciples were chosen of God. The disciples were clean, meaning they were saved. But they're about to experience failure, and they're about to be scattered. These ones that Yeshua had chosen. He said, you're going to leave me alone. The phrase leave me alone is actually much stronger in the Greek. It's better translated forsake me. You're going to forsake me. There's a time coming very soon when you're going to abandon me and scatter. Go hide out in your homes. You'll leave me alone. He said, I won't really be alone because the Father is with me. However badly he will be abandoned by the disciples, Yeshua is assured that the Father stands with him. So the disciples left him and fled. Now, was their faith not real? Christ had asked them, are you now believing? An hour is coming when you're going to run. You're going to run in doubt. You're going to run in fear. Was this some kind of false faith they had that they couldn't stand with them? No. But listen, it was a weak faith. It was a weak faith. But it was faith. They loved Christ. They trusted Christ. Well, they're going to be a lot stronger after Pentecost and the Spirit comes when they get it. You know, I think in our lives, even today, past Pentecost, there are times when we imagine that our faith is much stronger than it actually is. You know, we think, I can handle this, I can handle that. And trials help bring us to reality, don't they? Man, I thought I had it. You know, we're like King David. We can conquer the Philistine. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that replies against the armies of the living God? We'll take him on. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves between before the king and we're like drooling on ourselves, on our beard and scribbling on the wall because we're so afraid. The disciples' faith was not as strong as they thought. They're about to forsake him at the point of his greatest need for them. And this helps them to learn, you know, our strength is not in us. He says, yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. What do you think of that? Didn't the Father abandon Yeshua while Yeshua was on the cross? Okay, watch this. Mark 15, 34. And at the ninth hour, Yeshua cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's the son bearing the sin of the world. And God is forsaking him because God's turning his head from the sin that he's punishing on the cross. And listen, here's what we have to understand. Prior to this, there had never been one second when the father and son had been separated. Before the foundation of the world, Yeshua had enjoyed perfect and unbroken communion with the Father, and now because He had taken the place on the cross and borne in His body the sin of all mankind, the Father, who is too holy to look upon sin, has turned His countenance of His glory from His Son, but only for a brief time. The sun was darkened. It was three hours that He bore the sin of the world. 
He said, in verse 33, he says, I've said these things to you. I'm telling you all this stuff. You're going to forsake me. You're going to take off. You're going to run away. He said, I'm telling you that in me you might have peace. (laughs) Your circumstances aren't going to bring you a lot of peace. I want you to have peace in me. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, I've said these things to you. I think he's talking about from chapter 14. He's been talking about his going, his dying, and, you know, leaving them. And so they're kind of in turmoil about it. He says, that in me you may have peace. You know, real peace comes through knowing Christ and enjoying a relationship with Him. The text emphasizes that peace is in me. In other words, in Christ. That in me you might have peace. Not your circumstances. Paul picks up this same theme in many of his epistles where over and over he uses that in Christ or in me. It's the strength of our relationship to Yeshua that gives us peace in life's storms. And let me tell you, believers, storms are going to come. Mark it down. They're coming. They come, they go, but sometimes they're worse than others. Sometimes you get a beautiful flat sea and you can kick back and enjoy it and say, this is beautiful. But hang on, because the storm's coming. That's life. And here's what you need to understand. Here's what Yeshua's telling them. Peace is not the absence of trials or troubles. That's not peace. Peace is tranquility of heart and soul in the midst of the greatest storms. You can have peace anywhere when you know God. Leon Morris paints a picture of peace by explaining a painting which he saw. And I I think it's... I tried to find the painting, but I couldn't find it. But Morris says, I have read of an artist who wanted to paint a picture of peace. He chose, of all things, a storm beating against a rocky coast and depicted the waves, mountains high, crashing against the mighty rocks. He put a shipwreck in the picture with a great ship driven up against the rocks and in the process of breaking up. In the water nearby is the body of a drowned sailor. He has made it obvious there is a wild storm beating against the coast and that this storm means danger and even death to the people caught up in it. But in the foreground... He has a mighty rock with a crack in it. And in the crack, a dove has built her nest and is sitting on it, secure. Underneath, the artist has written the one word, peace. In other words, peace in the midst of the storm. The storm's raging. But in that rock, and our rock is Christ, there is peace. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. The world's going to persecute the disciples. He said they would. But they can take courage in the knowledge that Yeshua has overcome the world. He says, take heart. Some translations say, take courage. The word is thaseo here. It's a verb form and it's an imperative. This is a command. Every time this word is used in the New Testament, it comes from the lips of the Lord. He's the only one that ever said this. He's the only one that really can say this, okay? Take heart. No one else ever says in the New Testament, take heart. This is his final encouragement to his disciples. He goes right back to the starting point of this teaching where he said in 14, let not your heart be troubled. Here he tells the disciples who are confused and they're about to forsake him, he's just telling them, take heart. The world's coming against you, but guess what? I have overcome the world. The word of our Lord 
uses here is another one of those perfect tense verbs. It means that his victory is abiding or lasting. He gives us the assurance that if he has conquered the world and we are united to him, that victory is ours. Paul put it this way in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Yeshua our Lord. We're secure. He says, I've overcome the world. Yeshua's final words to the disciples that night were this, take heart. I've told you a lot of rough stuff here. You're about to leave me. But take heart. I've overcome the world. It's constructed in the Greek to mean that by a single event, Yeshua has conquered the world. And the victorious results are going to continue on through time. I've conquered it. It's it's done. Yeshua's victory over the world would be accomplished through the cross and the resurrection. And, And, you know... A lot of them wanted a military leader. they got to defeat Rome. Well, let me tell you, the greatest defeat to Rome is the resurrection. Because the power of Rome was the power of death. We will put you to death. We'll put you to a torturous death on the cross. And they did, and the Lord came right back from it. Defeating Rome, defeating all the powers of the enemy. And this overcoming included defeating all the lesser gods that we see in Psalm 82. The gods that He judged. Because the last verse of that psalm says, Arise, O God, inherit the nation. The world continues its attacks, but those who are in Christ share that victory He has won. We've overcome the world. We are in Christ. We are overcomers. So verse 33 concludes the second major section of the last discourse. It also concludes on the triumphant note, take heart. Take heart. I've overcome the world. Now chapter 17 As I said, he's not speaking to the disciples anymore. He's done teaching them. Now he's going to turn to the Father and pray for them and for us the things that he has been teaching them. And then he's going to go die. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. Lord, not something I ever would have taken on that had not been in the context that we're looking at. But I thank you for the little gems that are in there, Lord. I thank you for the word phileo. The fact that you phileo us is truly amazing, Lord, that you have a kindly affection towards us, a brotherly affection. Thank you for your love for us, Lord. Thank you for the work of Christ on the cross that has opened access to us, to the Father. Father, there's so much amazing truth here. Thank you for it. May we grasp it. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Amen.